welcome back to There Are Three of Me. As always, I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de Lamatrac, and Ina Corio. Those are my pen names, and we've been reading one of Philippe de Lamatrac's. And Philippe was created when I created this story, as I've said before. So we have read three chapters out of 30 chapters thus far, and I'm about to read chapter four. I have peeked ahead, and I know when the gruesome will start, chapter five. So chapter four is still non-gruesome, so haven't needn't worry about that. But for chapter five, I'm going to have to figure out how to let you know the timestamp when the telling music starts and the commentary begins. So I have one more day to figure that out. Because obviously I have to record it all with the timestamp. I mean, record it all and then figure out, I don't know, maybe I'll put a placer thing for 10 seconds. And then I'll know when it hits, but <laughs> then I can go back and re-record 10 seconds of telling what the timestamp is and then move that back in place. And yeah, I've got to figure that out. Logistical concerns. As I said, with Anchor, you can't just drop something in. Now, I, I did talk about that last time, about what you can do with Anchor, but um, I do want to mention, you can record things outside of Anchor and import them in. I think mostly you have to do that online. So you can import something. In fact, that's what I did with um, Alan's world building uh, thing. I just imported it. Um, so you can do that. So in that way, you can drop something in, but that's something recorded elsewhere. I like recording with Anchor because, as I said, I'm just talking into my phone. I'm not even using a headset. I've got it sitting on my desk, and I'm a few centimeters or inches above it as I'm just sitting in my desk chair. And I'm talking into it, and my peas don't pop, and you can hear me quite loudly. It's not a problem. I can even whisper, as I've proven in the last uh, episode, and you still hear it. So the audio quality, I would say, is pretty good. Maybe it's not great. And I don't, like I said, I don't have the best podcasting microphone or anything like that. I just have my phone in Anchor. Um, can you make a more sophisticated podcast elsewhere? Probably. But if you just want to start a podcast and get it out there, Anchor's good. I like it. I, you know, I could think it could have some better, fancier editing possibilities, but I know how to work with what it's got and in a way that works for me. So, yeah, it's not too bad. I, and it's free, so I'm going to stick with Anchor. It also does allow you to monetize without a minimum audience level, which is the only way I've made $5, <laughs> so, um... I'm not out there chasing sponsorships or or asking for donations. I'm not starting a Patreon or anything like that because, as I've said, fan fiction is free. If we start trying to make a profit at it, we'll get sued. We don't want to get sued. So, or have our stuff, our stories have to be taken down. No, we want to play nice with the powers that be. We want to keep it free keep it out there. 
the only thing I'm getting money from is that little anchor ad that you might hear at the beginning of an episode. Little by little, little pennies here and there. It's never going to buy me a fancy microphone. It's not going to do any of that. <laughs> it's just a little bitty pocket money. Maybe I'll go get a hot chocolate this winter with it. Nope. Oh, I can't even use it till I've got $10. So I got at least another 90 episodes to go before I can do that. Right. But for someone with another podcast, you know, who wants to be more serious at it, wants to make a profit at it, you can start earning money with a minimal audience. And I have a minimal average audience. I would love to have more just because as a fan fiction writer, I'm a reader whore. <laughs> sounds a little crazy, but no. If it, When I first posted my story, If It's Not One Thing, and remember, this was before fanfiction.net existed. So it was to a news group, alt.startrek.creative, and there was this person who contacted me from Germany and asked if I could send her the story but her mail carrier would only allow a certain amount of space per um, email. And I said, sure. And so I painstakingly broke that up into the small enough chunks to send it to her. Why? Because there's a reader there and I will do anything for a reader. <laughs> she asked if she could send it to her boyfriend to read. And I said, absolutely. And got talk back and forth with them through email and I was like, you're going to marry him someday? She's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, they're married. They have a kid. <laughs> they have two kids, I think. Uh, yes, two, Olivia and Phineas. I love that name, Phineas. It's a wonderful name. And uh, so <laughs> they're still my friends. I met them actually on my honeymoon. They took a trip to Prague and we took a trip to Prague. We spent a day with them. Um, they also came to before that they came to they came to america when i was living in the virginia area and we took a trip down to williamsburg with them and i don't think i've done oh yes i haven't done the faith trilogy yet but i'll let you in on a little secret <laughs> when i was riding in the back of the car as we were on our way down to williamsburg i wrote both of them no, I wrote Christian, that's the, the boyfriend, into the story and killed him. And if you remember, back in If It's Not, no, it was not If It's Not One Thing, it's Osvianchum, there was a nurse houseman, Tina Houseman, <laughs> Christian and Tina. <laughs> so I, I like putting my friends in my stories. And not that It's not their personalities. It's just their names. Just stick them in there. I've used uh, Tristan Smith, I think, before. He was a person who was a um, tour guide with me uh, at the Arabia Steamboat Museum in Kansas City. So, you know, we were both tour, tour guiding there. It's a wonderful museum, by the way. It's not free. It costs money, but it's because it's a private museum. But, oh, my gosh, and I, you got to understand, I have a master's in museum studies. I know how museums do this. And generally, a museum will have 10% of its artifacts on display and 90% back in research, um, you know, storage. But, you know, these are the collections that the researchers will go back and ask to see and all that. Not at the Arabia Steamboat Museum. And I'm not getting paid by them to do this. I love this museum. 
200 tons of pre-Civil War artifacts sunk on this steamboat going up the Missouri River in 1856. In 1988, they dug it up. They have part of the hull. They have part of the, they have one engine. They have built a wheel so that engine, it's not run on electricity, but it still turns the wheel. Um, they have the, the boilers and they have the cargo. There was prefab house on that boat. There was a whole sawmill. There was everything you need to build a house, whether you're rich or poor, tinware, china. There was food. The pickles were still crispy. Yeah, really. Did you know they had leather, or excuse me, rubber shoes in 1856? They did. It's on the boat. His, uh, reenactors will come to this museum just to look at the buttons because it's a big thing in, in reenacting to make sure your, your costume is accurate. And so they'll come to look and go, oh, they did have four hole buttons. <laughs> because if it was on that boat, then it was there before the Civil War. It was out in the frontier because that's where this boat was going. And they don't have space to put everything out, but that's their goal, to put everything out. It was so compacted into the, you know, imagine they had to pack it tight and compact to get it in the hull. But now that you take it out and you unpack it and you set everything on shelves and it's just exploded in size and it's just chock-a-block with artifacts. It's just amazing for that. There's everything on display and there's everything still in freezers waiting to be preserved to be put on display. It's a wonderful museum if you should come to Kansas City. Um, another museum is the National World War I Museum here in Kansas City. So it's not over in D.C. with the other Smithsonian's, Smithsonian's. It's right here in Kansas City. So that's cool. We've got a jazz museum. We've got um, the Negro Leagues Museum. A lot of museums here in Kansas City. This is not a podunk town. This is a big city. We've got an opera We've got, yeah, anyway, any, <laughs> we've got an orchestra. We've got uh, pro, bas pro baseball and pro football teams and pro soccer. So, yeah, and a ballet. We have a ballet. Yeah. It's really a nice little town to come visit out here in the middle of the country. But anyway, off my traveling and museum soapbox, back to the story. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that, but... Maybe I've got put a little bug in your ear. Come to Kansas City and see it. All right, let's get back to wherever it is that Hoshi and Malcolm have landed, crashed. We haven't yet heard the name of the planet or the country. Um, I honestly can't remember when it comes up. I know the name of the planet and I know the name of the country. We've heard the other country, Bhutanis. And we have met several of the um, native people now. I don't think I need to like rattle them off and, and remind you who they are each episode because I think my writing helps to make it clear. I think that you will know who they are. You'll start to see the personalities of them and you'll know who they are. All right, let's get back into it. 
Star Trek Enterprise, Alien Us, by Philippe de la Matroque. Chapter 4 The next morning, as they met for breakfast, Beiju and Kare sat in a far corner, away from anyone who might overhear, and Beiju told his friend all he knew. Which wasn't all that much, actually. The airship they had seen was strangely a ship from another world, though they still couldn't understand why it hadn't picked up the two survivors from the other ship before it left. The crashed ship was destroyed, leaving a crater and dust and ash and very little to study. Except the bit of bone one of the soldiers found. Burha had determined it was from a third creature since Dr. Bishte had not been able to find any loss of bone in the other's x-rays. The remaining two were apparently not related, as preliminary studies of their DNA showed some key differences. Little was known of them beyond what could be determined during surgery and in the lab, where tissue samples could be analyzed. What they could determine was that they were the same species, but different genders. They had lungs that breathed air, thick bones, and relatively small hearts. They appeared to be mammalian and, yes, sentient. How do you know they're sentient if they don't talk? Kare asked, still obviously stunned. He hadn't touched his food. They flew from space in a ship, Beiju answered, thinking it obvious. The ship crashed, and the other ship left them behind, Kare pointed, them, pointed out. They could have been pets or experiments. Those were good points, but they didn't explain the clothes. They wore clothing, Kare, woven fabric with fasteners. There is writing on the cloth. What does it say? Beiju chuckled a bit. I don't know. I don't speak mammal. Did they... Kare began and then tried again. Were they afraid of us? Do they think us as strange as we think them? Beiju thought about his answer, trying to focus his memory on their reactions. No, I don't think they were. Maybe they were in shock. They were injured. Or maybe they're just used to seeing beings from other planets. That would mean there are more, Kare stated with a faraway look in his eyes. If there can be sentient mammals out there, what else is out there? And if there are sentient mammals, Beiju said, making a different point, and all we're taught says that's not possible, what else is possible that we think isn't? What other truths are untrue? How can we trust anything we've ever known? They leaned forward on their chairs and let that thought run for a bit. It was Kare who finally broke their ponderous silence. You're a scientist, Beiju. At least you have something to fall back on. Except that it might all be untrue, Beiju refuted, not seeing the bright spot in this new veil of chaotic uncertainty. You are always saying science is the method, Kare told him. The method, not the results. So you can put that method to work and find answers. The method hasn't changed. Beiju hadn't thought of it that way. The method. Evidence, hypothesis, experimentation, and publication. The evidence had changed, but the method had not. I'd bet General Geiger doesn't see it that way, Kare continued. Without the ship, if we can't communicate with them, we can't find the answers we need. Like, why did they come here in the first place? Hoshi so wanted to cry out to know she wasn't alone, to find a way to communicate with the people who held them. But she understood Lieutenant Reed's order. No communication, no questions, no answers. It was probably easier for him. He was so quiet anyway. But she was made for communication. All her talent and passion went to learning languages and bridging the gap between two cultures.
She wanted to know the native's intentions. She wanted to know about her injuries. She wanted to know where the lieutenant was and if he was okay. She wanted to talk. She had lain awake the whole night, or what she guessed was night. Without a window, she couldn't be certain. What she did know was that she was scared and her chest was starting to hurt again. The red overhead lights had faded, leaving the room warm and white. They had healed her, but what would they want with her now? When a face appeared in the door's window, she suddenly wanted to stay alone. The face was reptilian, and except for the environmental suit that covered it, it reminded her of a scene from a 20th century movie about dinosaurs brought back from extinction in an amusement park, a velociraptor looking through the kitchen window at the two children who were trying to get away. That's what they reminded her of, velociraptors. Of course, beyond their first introduction, she'd yet to see more than just the head of whoever kept watch. When the doors opened, it was a soft sucking sound like an airlock being released. Quarantine, she realized. They knew nothing about her, whether she carried diseases or anything else dangerous to them. Two of the creatures, people, she told herself, entered, one taller than the other and both wearing environmental suits. The tall one moved closer, bending down to peer into her face. She met his gaze, but did not say anything. She kept her silence as ordered, but she would say what she could with her eyes. After a moment, she felt she'd gotten through to the creature. He straightened up quickly and stepped back. He barked an order to the smaller one, who held up what looked like a, a clipboard. The taller one's demeanor changed, and Hoshi immediately felt like a science exhibit. He turned her head one way and then the other, opened her mouth to examine her teeth, manually opened and shut her jaw a few times, all the while spouting notes for the smaller one to jot down in his on its clipboard. He seemed fascinated that her jaw could move sideways as well, though at one point he moved it too hard and Hoshi winced. The creature let go of her, said something to the smaller one, and then resumed where he'd left off. He studied her arms next, releasing one of the restraints. He tested its movement in every direction not interrupted by the bed they had her on. Her fingers apparently enthralled him. He counted them one by one, and so she learned their first five numbers. Ak, Ash, Bak, Se, Ki. Where it went from there, though, made her quite uncomfortable. He pulled back the ill-fitting gown and fingered her breasts in the same clinical and yet curious manner. She closed her eyes and told herself over and over that he was a doctor no different than flocks. She would not feel overly uncomfortable in a doctor's presence on earth or enterprise. She shouldn't hear. Still, she kept her eyes closed and stiffened her body until he had moved down to her knees and replaced the gown. He seemed completely unaware of her previous discomfort and just as fascinated with her feet as with every other part of her. Ak, ash, ba, se, ki, again, five toes on each foot. Finished with that initial exploration, the big one got down to business. He removed both arm restraints and sat her up on the bed. It hurt a bit but he did call the other one over to support her. Once again, he removed the gown by a tie at the shoulder. He then began to remove the bandages from around her chest, all the while talking over her shoulder to the smaller one. He's giving directions, she realized, like a doctor training an intern. Once the bandages were taken away, the big one carefully patted her ribs and inspected the incision through which they must have repaired her lungs. He said something to her this time, but she only stared back. He motioned to her, holding his hands to the side of his own chest as he inhaled deeply. She understood and did what he was suggesting. 
She was more comfortable now that her role was back to patient rather than exotic curiosity or alien specimen. The tall one, doctor, she decided to call him, resumed his examination. She winced a few times, and the doctor said something else to the smaller one, the intern. The doctor rewrapped her ribs and walked away. The intern put up a syringe to her shoulder and tied the gown back up. And he, too, moved away. The door opened, and they were gone. Still feeling weak and now once again feeling sleepy, Hoshi laid herself back down. She was glad that at least they hadn't restrained her again. She could untie her ankles when she woke up. She just, she had just a moment to note she'd moved into another phase of her stay here before her eyes became too heavy and she closed them in sleep. Malcolm Reed had not slept all night. He realized it was morning when the red lights dimmed. As reptiles, the natives here needed heat lamps at night, so once the red light was off, the day, he reasoned, would supply enough warmth. And all that reasoning didn't change his, his situation any. He was still there tied to a bed on an alien planet, one crew member dead, the other lost to him. Just when the pain in his arm was becoming too much to ignore, two natives entered. Beaked ones, one taller than the other. They wore environmental suits, and one carried an old-fashioned clipboard and a camera. The taller one gave the other some instructions and then came over to read for the inevitable examination. What proceeded was the most laborious, embarrassing, invasive examination he'd ever been subjected to. The doctor poked at every minute part of him, from eyebrows to toenails, while, a shorter, while the shorter one took photos and jotted down notes. He did his best to bear it with enough reed stoicism to make his father proud, but it wasn't easy. Still, he managed with only an occasional wince or the closing of his eyes. After all that fuss, they finally got down to the business of his broken arm, the taller one, Saruman, he decided, keeping with the theme of their silly code names, unwrapped, cleaned, and redressed the wound, and then replaced the hard plastic splint before winding it all back up again. Oddly enough, they didn't restrain him again. Saruman simply placed his arm back on the fabric on, in the fabric on the hook to keep it suspended, and walked away with the verbal order to the smaller one. That one gave him a shot of something which caused the pain in his arm to die down and his eyeballs to become heavy. He was asleep before the small one left the room. Dr. Bishte had waited for him in the corridor with his helmet off. He smiled. So what have we learned? he asked, putting Beju on the spot. They are similar to us in several ways, Beju began, keeping it simple. Two arms, two legs, eyes, ears, mouths. But they are more similar to each other. Five digits on each limb, no claws, highly mobile mandible. They are different from each other as well, Bishte added. In what ways? Their skin tones, body hair placement, musculature, shape of the torso, eye shape and color, head fur length, and of course, genitalia. Bishte nodded. So what can we surmise? They are the same species, but the differences derive from their separate genders or separate classes within the species. A very good hypothesis, Bishte agreed, though further study is required to test that theory. I'm content, though, that the differences seem superficial. Of course, they are likely to have different reproductive organs, but after initial internal study, we can concentrate our studies on the male. What do we do with the female? Beiju asked as they began to walk away. It will be superfluous. Of course, we will try to keep the male viable, but we can keep the female as a backup subject. 
All this, of course, must wait until they heal. It's all superficial until then. Doctor, Beiju said, setting a hand on Beiju's arm to stop him again. What does it all mean together? They're aliens from another world. Are there others, different ones, out there? And why did they come here anyway? Bishte sighed. All good questions that I can only theorize about now. I believe there are others, I'm sure you're well aware. I feel vindicated by the appearance of these two. As to why they came or what others are out there, we can only guess or infer from the evidence these two give us, either through study, experimentation, and observation, or by communicating with them directly. Is it even possible to communicate with them directly? Hypothetically, from just the superficial examination, I think they have the ability to communicate. Certainly, they have the intelligence. They might not do so verbally, or they might be sim simply be cautiously observing us. Beiju gave that some thought, imagining himself in the opposite role. Do you think they are afraid of us? Perhaps, but we cannot allow sentiment to stand in the way of discovery. Our worldview has been shaken by their arrival. If they won't communicate with us, we will have to get the information we need scientifically. They are subjects, Beiju, not guests. And if they were not subjects, they would be prisoners, as Colonel Geiger sees them. Which would you prefer? Beiju nodded, understanding that choice very well. Good, Bishte said, clapping him gently on the shoulder. Get those notes into the system and scan the images. We'll need them to plan our studies. Beiju nodded and headed toward the doctor's office while Bishte went to meet with his super superiors. At least he had a little more information to share with Kare now. When he awoke, Malcolm's arm hurt a bit, his other arm. He lifted his head to see a small bandage there over a ball of cotton. They had drawn his blood again. He wondered why that they did that. Was it for Hoshi? Was she that bad off? Or were they just stocking up? He didn't want to think about that. But given the time, night again, if he judged by the warm red light, and the quietness of the room, he didn't have much else to keep his mind from going places he'd rather stay away from. The old gag film Alien Autopsy came to mind. Planet of the Apes also popped up. Only one of the surviving astronauts escaped without a lobotomy, and he was seen as a threat. No, he forced himself off that train of thought. They had treated him kindly, if clinically, so far. Yes, they were scientifically curious. Who wouldn't be when the first aliens you ever knew existed showed up on your doorstep? They had treated his arm and Hoshi's ribs, he assumed. They had managed to successfully anesthetize him without knowing the first thing of human physiology. They had fairly advanced medical technology based on what little he'd seen. They weren't cavemen. They had plenty of opportunity to kill him and dissect him since they found him in Hoshi and hadn't done that yet. They had even released the restraints. Restraints? He sat up now that he remembered. His arms were free, and it only took a few minutes, given his one bad arm, to release his legs. It felt good just to bend them, though he got a bit dizzy when he stood up. His whole body felt stiff, and he was hungry. He also felt the call of nature and was glad he could use the odd lavatory with his back to the door with its little window and ever-present face. Hoshi wouldn't have it so easy. Neither would he, eventually. That accomplished, and no evidence of anything edible forthcoming for the night, he paced his small room, tapping lightly on the walls. The guard's head cocked to the side at that, but Reed ignored him, trying to make his tapping sound casual, more like a song than the Morse code he was using. 
After about an hour of that, with no response, he felt sleepy again. His rational mind told him Hoshi was either still sleeping or not in an adjoining room, but he couldn't talk himself out of the heavy feeling of aloneness that began to sink into his chest. He laid back down on the so-called bed and wallowed in it until he fell back asleep. Hoshi counted seven nights, wondering if she'd been unconscious through more than that. Her ribs felt better, though they still ached considerably. Every day, the smaller guy, the intern, who would come in to change her bandages and give her an injection, though lately the injection didn't make her as dizzy and did less and less to dull her pain. She thought that perhaps they didn't know how much pain she was in. She dismissed that. She couldn't tell them how much it hurt, but that, but she could, couldn't keep all of it out of her facial expressions or body language. Perhaps, then, they were studying her reaction to the pain, or they simply didn't know which drugs worked best for her since she couldn't tell them. Still, she, was, she tried not to dwell on it. Her ribs were healing in spite of the pain, and they were finally getting a handle on what kinds of food she would, could eat. Though she was game to try new and exotic dishes, she had drawn the line at raw living rodents, worms, or, or insects. She preferred the fruits and vegetables they gave her. Some of them were actually quite tasty. She especially liked the sweet purple melon. She wondered, though, if Malcolm's allergies were limiting his choices even further than hers. Seven nights, a week of silence. There were only two people on this planet that she could talk to, and she couldn't find one and hadn't seen the other in over a week. She couldn't remember the last time she had ever gone so long without talking to someone in some way. She'd never felt this lonely, even, when someone even with someone watching her every second. Seven days in, and she'd kept only a modicum of modesty. She'd learned to use the odd toilet contraption in the best manner she could manage. The first time, she, she was quite nervous because of the shape and size of it and because of her peeping Tom, Orc, she decided, by now, she'd had to use it so many times she didn't care if he was watching. She'd yet to be let out of the room, so she had to take care of her needs right there under his nose. At least Malcolm could stand up half the time, she thought ruefully. Every time her thoughts returned to him, she felt lonelier. The male creature ate more. That was no surprise to Beiju. He even seemed more willing to try new things, though both balked at live meals. Beiju had never seen that before. He had assumed then that they were herbivores, but Bishte reminded him not to jump to conclusions. The doctor carried the experiment further by bringing them carry-on, which they also wouldn't touch. In fact, they kept as far away from it as possible in their small quarantine rooms. And then Bishte got creative and put fresh meat without skin over a burner until it was dark and stiff. That they ate. They were truly alien. But the surprise was that the male was apparently the more susceptible to illness, Twice in the last week, he'd gotten sick in response to his meals. Beiju was able to work out the reasoning himself, given that it happened immediately after the male ate. He was allergic. But to what? The whole fruit or a particular nutrient in it? There was no way to tell except by the scientific method. His meals were carefully planned out to narrow down by elimination the ingredients he was allergic to and what reaction they produced. The first time a reaction had occurred was to hava, a sweet, seedless fruit imported from the tropics. He'd sneezed for hours. A second time came from a kuf, the red root of the kefir flower. His limbs and face had swollen and become blotchy with a red rash. Fortunately, he'd eaten little of it, and the swelling reduced in less than an hour. The rash had lasted through the night. 
The female was fed the same foods and had no adverse physical reactions. With only one of each, however, could they truly know these two were representative of the entire species? DNA tests carried out on the bone fragment were inconclusive, though enough to prove it had come from neither of the two specimens they had on hand. There had been a third alien. Subsequent searches of the area could not find enough trace evidence to piece together any more of the third, so they could come to no conclusions about it other than that it had existed and now did not. Both these surviving aliens slept a great deal, which could be attributed to their injuries, especially the females. Of course, it could be part of their natural behavior, like felines. They could be accustomed to cooler climates and thus conserve energy in the heat by sleeping. Beju dismissed that one. They were walking in the desert when they were found. Beju had his own idea on why they slept so much. Boredom. These creatures had traveled in space. Being stuck in such small rooms, alone, for a week had to be maddeningly dull. The actions of the male when he was awake seemed to bear that out. He sometimes paced the room and tapped absently against the walls. Dr. Pishte had hoped it was some form of communication, but he never did it when they were in the room. As it was, he tapped on every wall except the one with the door, which would be the most apparent channel for communication with his hosts. Neither could Dr. Bishte discern a particular pattern that might be indicative of language. However, it was rhythmic, and thus the scientists had concluded the male was tapping music. And that was exciting in itself. They may be more like us than we thought, Beju told his friend at breakfast. Like us, Kare repeated. They came from another planet. How does tapping on a wall make them like us? Because it's culture, Kare. Beju replied, like art and films. If they have music, they might have those other things too. We know they have science and technology, but culture shows even more depth of intelligence. Kare smiled. That's strange coming from a winged. Most of you have no use for the monitors. Beju didn't take offense. Well, you raptors don't seem too appreciative of them either. Not true, Kare argued. We know the value of entertainment and relaxing after a night's or day's work. It's you wingets who bring your work home and analyze everything, in, even in your sleep. We haven't been to a film since they arrived. It's only been a week, Beju reminded him. Besides, this isn't just some geological study, Kare. This is like a meteor striking the planet. This changes everything. Kare pushed his cup away and looked thoughtfully back at his friend. If you were in charge, Beju, what would you do with them? Beju pondered his friend's question with equal thoughtfulness and answered, Just what we're doing. We have to study them. They won't just talk to us, and even if we could make them, how could we understand what they're saying? So we have to glean whatever information we can. Kare shook his head. It just seems so slow. Ten days, and we really don't know much at all. Well, Beju began, we know they breathe air like we do. Don't like live animals for food, wear manufactured clothing, and can fly in outer space? Yes, Kare said, waving a hand, and they have skeletons of bone and some cartilage, teeth for both plant and meat-eating, and a dozen other scientific facts, but we don't know where they came from or why they came. Are they explorers or are they con conquerors? Do they want to trade with us or enslave us? If they were to attack, could we make a defense? And what about others? If these creatures are out there, even if they are pacifistic scientists, are there others who are just hoping to find a planet full of reptiles to devour? Can science answer those questions? Beju considered that. 
maybe not all of them, but I wouldn't think they would stop to make music if they were only interested in war. They'd stopped wearing environmental suits somewhere around two weeks. That probably meant they were no longer concerned about microbes or bacteria, Hoshi decided, though remembering the Klingon-esque food they brought her early on, and pairing that with what she knew of lizards on Earth, she worried about microbes and bacteria from them. Komodo dragons drooled particularly noxious saliva that helped to kill their prey. Two weeks in, Hoshi was not at all worried about being eaten. But what if one of them sneezed? Her ribs were feeling better, though they still hurt quite a bit if she made any sudden moves. Not a lot of chance for that, though. Her days were mind-numbingly routine. At least the food had gotten better. It still couldn't match chef's cooking, but she was sure she'd had worse in her secondary school cafeteria. The fruits were actually quite good, and the vegetables were fresh, if somewhat bland. When she was visited, it was rather clinical and far less a violation than the first visit. In fact, it had all become rather blasé to her. What was curious to her, though, was the fact that they never tried to communicate with her. Not once did they attempt to introduce themselves in even the most rudimentary way. They spoke, but only to each other. And she was beginning to understand words and phrases, glimpses of grammatical structure by their clipped and meager speech. They spoke about her, and scientifically so, but never to her. They drew blood, checked the progress of her ribs, weighed and measured her, and left her alone. And alone was how she spent the rest of each day and night. She wished she had some assurances that they hadn't bugged the room. Then she would just turn her back to the face in the door and talk to herself just to have someone to talk to. But she had no assurances, and the nights had be became oppressively quiet. She had just laid down, hoping to fall asleep quick quickly when she heard something. Tapping. At first she worried it was some sort of rodent or other pest, but then she started to discern a pattern to it that sounded vaguely familiar. It stopped. Her heart dropped. It was something, maybe something from Malcolm. She played it over in her head and tried to place the rhythm. It wasn't Morse. Morse code had only a few intervals, short between dots, long between, longer between dashes, and even longer between words. Morse code sounded mechanical, and this was more musical. Without tune and pitch, it was harder to identify. She played it again, and just then the tapping resumed, and in her head she heard an orchestra. She nearly cried for joy of that sound, Starfleet's anthem. Malcolm Reed really didn't know why he bothered, except that he had nothing better to do, and he couldn't let go of his need to find Hoshi, even if he couldn't leave the room. By now the ever-present guard even seemed bored with it. He didn't put it past them to try and find patterns to his tapping, however, which is why he decided upon songs and not code. He could change songs and change the pattern, making them st start from scratch. Today's chosen tune was the Starfleet Anthem. He'd used it before, but he had to keep the repertoire rather thin to be sure Hoshi had the best chance of recognizing it. She might not be a classical fan, or she might not know Mozart from Wagner. He kept it to singable choruses, short pieces of some known value to Hoshi, and Starfleet's anthem fit that nicely. But just like every other day, he heard nothing in reply. The overhead heat lamps had come on, and he had given it another five minutes before he called it quits. He finished the last chorus from the bed and laid down, resolving to do some light conditioning the next day. He still couldn't do much with his arm, but he could manage sit-ups at the very least. There were some karate warm-ups that would seem innocuous enough to appear non-threatening. That decided, he closed his eyes. 
and then popped them open again when he heard a soft rapping on the wall. Had it been Morse, it would have begun dash, 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 dot, dot. But Malcolm knew it wasn't Morse, just as his had not been, and he knew it wasn't his captors just trying to tap back as an experiment because the rhythm was far too familiar and British. God save the queen. Wanting a confirmation, confirmation he risked one word in Morse. Frodo. And he had to force himself not to smile when he heard the reply. Sam. Beju stood behind Dr. Bishte, taking notes on every reaction the male made. Bishte, Dr. Bishte said, touching his own chest lightly before touching the male's chest. The male followed the movement of Bishte's hand with his gaze, but made no move to reply. Neither did he look perplexed or, conf or confused, however. If anything, he appeared disinterested, though, of course, even that was an assumption on Beju's part. What basis did they have for interpreting facial expressions of aliens? Bishte, the doctor said again. This time he even touched Beju on the arm and gave his name. Without thinking, Beju ducked his head at the introduction. Still, the male kept silent. Dr. Bishte stood upright. It is possible, he stated for Beju's benefit, that they don't communicate verbally. Or he doesn't want to communicate, Beju thought. Do you mean the tapping, he asked. Possible, though we can still not detect any particular pattern, the female does only tap on the conjoining wall, however, but no, I mean that they might communicate telepathically. If that were so, they wouldn't need the tapping. Even if it is not communication in the strictest sense, it may be that it comforts the female to know the male is nearby. If they could communicate telepathically, she wouldn't need such comfort. She would know he is here. Dr. Bishkde regarded him for a moment. You've really been giving this, giving this thought, haven't you? I find it fascinating, Doctor, Beju admitted, though it is still incredible to suddenly know that aliens exist. A bit frightening as well, yes? Not so much these two. Beju waved a hand at the male, who was following their conversation with his eyes. They seem placid enough, but the whole idea, rather, and who else, or what else, might be out there? We are only on the cusp of discovery, young one, but to get back to the topic at hand, hypothesizing telepathy. telepathy. It could be their telepathy only reaches those they can see, and these two could not see each other. But he can see us, true. But would we know how to perceive his thoughts if he were sending them? Then Dr. Bishte smiled. Well, telepathy or no, they do possess vocal cords, so we can assume that they use them for something. So we shouldn't give up trying to communicate verbally, Beju concluded, or trying to find patterns in their tapping. Bishte, Malcolm pondered, and Beju. I'm still going to call you Saruman. Not sure about the little guy yet. He wondered what they were discussing, but seeing as he didn't possess Hoshi's gift for language, he concentrated on their interaction. The smaller one deferred to Saruman, who almost seemed like a teacher. Perhaps the smaller one was just young, a student as well as an assistant. Oddly, whenever a different doctor visited with this assistant or a different one, there was far less discussion and more order barking. Maybe Saruman was more of a Gandalf. They hadn't mistreated him, after all. Sure, they kept him locked up and away from Hoshi, and drew his blood every few days, but tortured them with nothing more menacing than boredom. Maybe he was more of a Thranduil to Malcolm's Thorin, though that would be jumping books altogether. Bored enough that I keep playing games with Tolkien codenames, Malcolm chided himself. 
Where is Enterprise? It had been thirty days by his count, give or take a few in the monotony of it all, thirty days and no sign of rescue, and no way to get a, to get a sign. It just wasn't like Captain Archer to leave his people behind like this. If they were still trying to stop the Zindi weapon, Malcolm would understand the captain finally making that decision. He'd been a different man then, but that threat was ended months ago. Enterprise was exploring again. Archer couldn't feel compelled to sacrifice two of his senior staff and a Mako. No, Enterprise and her captain would come for them when they could. He was sure of it. He and Hoshi would just have to wait it out. They couldn't say much without giving the natives a stepping stone, however obscure, to communicating with them. But in small doses, she and Malcolm passed assurances in code through the wall between them, and it was the high point of her day when they did. She felt physically better just knowing she wasn't alone and that the lieutenant was all right. Each time he tapped, exercised her mind to pull the tune from her memory, and each word she received or gave was a lifeline giving her something to hold on to. The silence, she was convinced, would have driven her mad eventually. She wished the natives would try to talk to her, not so she would disobey Malcolm's order or risk contaminating their culture any further, but rather for the challenge of learning to understand more than a few medical or biological terms. She felt like she was no more than a lab rat to them. On the, other, on the one hand, they seemed understandably fascinated and curious to discover and study an alien, but on the other, they had no wish to communicate with it, even without knowing whether or not it had any intention of communicating back. They should at least try, she thought. She supposed she should feel relieved, but it frankly made her a bit angry. They don't talk, she told Malcolm, tagging it on to the end of the itsy-bitsy spider. She waited a while for a reply, as always, worrying that it wasn't just a disguise for their attempt at contact with each other, but that she hadn't heard at all, heard her, he hadn't heard her at all. Eventually, though, she heard it. It was hard to tell the song, given the even beats of it. She worked, she'd worked that out later as a distraction. Right then, she wanted the message at the end. Due to me. Now she was really mad. They were talking to Lieutenant Reed, but not to her. And she was a linguist. Of course, they didn't know that, but still, she did. She knew that she should be the one they tried to talk to. More tapping. No song. Safer this way. He must have known how she felt. That surprised her. She liked Ma Malcolm, but he was so private that she forgot how observant of others he was. He was right, of course, though it didn't make her feel any better. We do not know that they are a threat, one of the wingeds at the long table said. Colonel Geiger glared back at him. We do not know that they are not, he retorted. Mind your tone, Colonel, Grand Raptor Usa scolded. You address the council. Colonel, Ge <coughs> Colonel Geiger bit back his next, in next invective rather than voicing it aloud. Forgive me, he said, dipping his head to the winged whose name he had not bothered to learn. If I may, Dr. Berha interjected, the colonel is correct in that we don't know either way. The problem is that we can't know if they won't tell us, and they don't seem inclined to speak. In fact, we are not even certain that they can they are, there are simply too many questions. The colonel fumed. Burha had already cut off his avenue of argument. He couldn't force the aliens to talk if they couldn't talk. The head councilman spoke for the first time since the meeting began. Their wounds are healed? Sufficiently so, sir, Dr. Burha replied, so as to not threaten viability or hinder further research. 
and you can keep them viable. We believe so. Life support is simple enough. We have stocked blood from the male and it is compatible with that of the female. Respirators can be and have been adapted to keep their airways open. The head councilman nodded and the colonel waited for him to say more, but it was the winged who spoke next. From the preliminary exams, it would appear that they have little in the way of defense or offense, biologically speaking. Any threat would have to be technological, and until communication is possible, we can't discover their threat potential. What we can learn from them physically outweighs their strate strategic value. We can learn about their biology, of course, but that can give us clues to geography as well, telling us what kind of world they come from. And sociologically, Dr. Berha piped in, and learning of the culture could give us hints at their threat potential. Respectively, I submit that until they communicate and we can understand their communications, science is the only way we will learn anything. Colonel Geiger knew he'd lost even before the vote. He did understand the logic behind the decision. What bothered him was the time. Science was a valuable tool, but a slow one. It had been 40 days already since the aliens had been found. If an attack was coming, it could be next week or next month. And would they be ready? If I may, he interjected after the last vote was cast and the decision passed. The head councilman nodded. It may be that in the course of studying the aliens, they may speak or communicate in some other way. It may also be that we will not recognize it or understand it. Would it not be wise, therefore, to have a linguist present at all times to study any such communications? I am certain the learned doctor and his colleagues have been diligently recording the tappings the aliens do, but they are biologists, geologists, sociologists. A linguistic specialist might find such patterns where a biologist might miss them. The same winged on the council ducked his head. A reasonable suggestion. I concur, said the head councilman. If there is any who disagrees, speak now. None spoke, so the colonel resigned himself to this one small victory. The wingeds would have the aliens for now, but a linguist working with them directly meant that they might get to reevaluate that decision all the sooner. We may proceed, Vishte announced to the gathered scientist. A cacophony of clapping and clucking followed that proclamation, and he reveled in it for a moment before raising his hands for silence. A month ago, he was considered a quack. Today, they all looked to him for guidance. He respected each one of them and did not consider himself so high above them in knowledge or skill to merit this change of fortune. It was the depth of his imagination that set him apart and turned them toward him. He was the only one to have dreamed that aliens might exist and invest his time and thought into imagining what they might be like or how to find out. The information we've gained thus far is invaluable, he told the group. But there is much still to be discovered. We will start with a comprehensive internal examination of both subjects. We must, however, keep them alive, and so we must not take on too much at once. We will have time later for detailed explorations of major organ systems. We can also narrow down the redundancies. One lower limb will suffice to tell us of both, for example, though we should accurately document both genders. So what we are looking for at first is a baseline anatomical evaluation, Dr. Anish asked. Precisely, Vishte replied. Anything further might prove too much strain. We can test tolerances later and move forward, principally with the male, at that point. My fellows, this is an historic moment, and we are the ones at the apex of it all. The celebration lasted for a good five minutes, and then, in their euphoria, the scientists began 
talking in small groups. This banter naturally melded into scientific discussions, questions, and plans. Within two hours, the two surgical teams had been picked, and the methods of anesthesia and life support decided. All that was left was to prepare the surgical area and the subjects themselves. Well, there we go. There's chapter four. And I must say, we've named two other natives thus far. Oh, maybe we, maybe we did three. So I believe we did mention Hinath at one point, probably maybe even in chapter three, and I just missed it. Hinath is like Beju, an assistant. And then we mentioned Dr. Enesh. He is going to crop up more and more. And Grand Raptor Usa. So the council has three of each type, monitors being the third, which Kare and Beju mentioned not appreciating. So they do have something to do with entertainment and, and such. Um, but there's three monitors, three raptors, and three wingeds. And Grand Raptor Usa then would be the head raptor. Okay, and we've also learned a few words Ak, Ash, Ba, Se, Ki, one, two, three, four, five. There was the Haba and a Kuf, part of the Kafir flower. So we have a few things um, placed in this world. But now we have some communication between Malcolm and Hoshi, the tapping on the walls and doing songs and Morse code. So they're not quite as lonely now. But it's been interesting that Hoshi mentions they don't talk to her, and now she's a little angry that they do talk to Malcolm. I mean, she's the linguist, you know. She's got a right to be angry. angry. But, well, there's reasons. I'm not going to spill them. You have to find out through the story. Okay. You might have noticed at the end there them talking about this upcoming internal investigation. Yeah, so chapter five, as I said, is where the gruesome begins. That's the next chapter. Hopefully, after these four chapters, you're invested and willing to head into those dark waters and see if, you know, you can handle them. I will still give, you know, I'm going to work it out how I can do it to give a timestamp verbally and in the description for the the telling music so we can get into the commentary afterwards it's just going to take I've, I've got kind of an idea how i can do it um one thing else i wanted to say about anchor while i'm thinking of logistics unfortunately when you when you rename a file see i usually name a file that has edits in it edit simply four letters, it's easy to write, and then I edit it, and then I change the name. But if I decide to change that name from something that's almost what I want, maybe it's Alien Us Chapter 4 Part 5 Edited, in parentheses, because the editing process will always put edited on it. I did have to go back and re-edit a file yesterday. Um, and you just want to take off edited, the rest was fine. Nope, you got to start over from the beginning. 
when you say rename, it gives you a blank line. You don't get to edit what you had before. You have to start over, which can be cumbersome if you have a long title. Fortunately, Alienus is rather short. And the um, autocorrect on my phone gets most of it out there. Okay, so when this chapter started, Kare and Beju are having breakfast again. So we get to a little bit more of their personalities, their relationship with each other. And then we go into Hoshi being bored and and being, well, before she's really bored, she's investigated or she's examined. And in, in a lot of ways that you or I might, if, if an alien was placed in front of us, examine them. If I was a biologist, for instance, or a biologist and, you know, looking at a newly discovered animal specimen. You would, you know, look at its eyes, its mouth, and move, move its jaw around. You would count its fingers and see how his arms moved and look at the anatomical bits um, as well. You would do all of that. That's what you would do so you could make proper documentation of your specimen. And that's what they were doing. Dr. Bishte, if you noticed, Hoshi seems to notice other doctors, even when they're there with this, this assistant, don't talk to him in the same way. So Bishte is a little bit more of a Gandalf to Beju. And even though Malcolm has named him Saruman, he's wondering if maybe he, maybe a different name. But right now we were sticking with Saruman. So that's the first of the uh, natives being given a star, uh, a, a Lord of the Rings code name. Although Hoshi has called the guard in the window Orc. So that may come up again. Um, Malcolm, likewise, does not have fun in that examination, but, you know, tries to just be stoic and get through it. And then Beju and... Dr. Bishte have an interesting discussion in the hall about what they might be able to surmise from what they've seen. And I like the, this one here that says that, this one line that says that we can't let um, sentiment stand in the way of discovery. So they don't want to be cruel, but they're not going to let sentiment keep them from doing what they need to do to, to, do, to examine them. And time passes. We start with seven days um, or nights, um, as Hoshi can remember from being when she was conscious anyway. And she's annoyed by the silence. And then they talk about how they're eating and what they've given them to eat. And Malcolm's having allergic reactions to some of it. So they won't eat live animals and they won't eat carry-on. Um, dead, dead, rotting animals, but they will eat cooked meat. How strange. Um, and fruits and vegetables. So they have to do it by, you know, elimination. Just try something and see if they'll eat it because they don't know what these aliens would eat. And there's more discussion between Be Beju and Kare about that. And there's this frustration with the, the raptors. Kare gives it a little bit, but Geyser gives it a lot. That they need to know why they came and how they can, you know, 
defend against an invasion force or if that's even, you know, their intention. Around two weeks in, they stop using the um, environmental suits, so they're no longer concerned about contaminants. But Hoshi points out the Komodo dragon has a very bacterially bad mouth. <laughs> and so what happens if these guys sneeze on her? Will she get a disease, you know? That's an interesting question. It could happen, I suppose. And then um, Malcolm starts tapping on the walls. And he starts with Morse code, but then he goes to music because he thought, you know, they might find the pattern in the Morse, but also, you know, he just wants to make it look like he's tapping absent, absently to, to do, deal with boredom. And um, Beju's the first one to guess it right, to guess that boredom. And then there was an interesting um, part where they introduced themselves to Malcolm, tried to get him to say his name. <laughs> Bishte, 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 Beju. Hmm? He won't give it to them. Um, then they have a little bit more uh, tapping between each other, Hoshi and Malcolm, and that's where she finds out that they are talking to him and not her which is frustrating for her. And then we end with, well, not quite end, we have a council meeting again. So we had a council meeting in chapter three, and now we're back a month later at the council meeting, and they have decided they still have to go on with science. They don't have anything else. And so Geyser feels like he's losing this one, but he has an idea to put a linguist in. It's kind of a a compromise, and you have to compromise in the council. He's a little bit more savvy, maybe, than Dr. Jenna when it comes to the council. And so he says a linguist needs to be added to the mix to catch any communication should it happen. And then at the end, we have the celebration where Bishte announces that they are ready, they're able to proceed. They work out how they can do it, and everybody's happy, and they start planning the surgical plan. Yeah, so surgical. <laughs> this is where chapter five gets gruesome. Okay, so you're warned. But I do hope you'll come back and listen to it, and I will try to do a good job of summarizing it without being gruesome at the end in the commentary. I've spent Four chapters at this point, as I was writing this, getting to the point of the story. <laughs> and when this idea came to me, it was that Hoshi and, and Malcolm would be vivisected. And then I thought of a plot to get them vivisected. It didn't go the other way, but I'm a very literal or linear writer. And so I did post this over 10 years and it's not like I finished the story and then posted it in parts. I used to write whole stories and then post them all at once. I didn't hold them off and do them as a serial, as some people do. But at this point, I was just writing straight through. And so I would write for on and off for six months or so and then post it as I do any other story, you know, type it up, check it post it, and then put it out there. And so I didn't have a giant outline for this story. 
Sometimes I do have something of an outline. I'm not a big planner, but that doesn't mean I don't have a plan. I knew where this story was going and how it was going to be. I knew it was a year long. I knew what would happen, you know, the whole twist of it. I knew everything that, you know, the, the main stuff that had to happen. I just had to fill this year. And that is not an easy prospect, I will say. But I was reading some of my comments yesterday um, on Alien Us, which is, by the way, is also a good way to transition yourself into back into a different fandom and, you know, the story you're writing the sequel to. Read the comments. I just, I loved it. Um, some people were questioning, is this all the story is about getting them vivisected? And I'm kind of like, well, yeah, technically <laughs> it is. <laughs> but... I hope to do a good job of it in any any way and have some character development and 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 all that. Um, but others of them, you know, were thinking that I was in the medical field um, or a scientist because of the way you know I write the scientists looking at their subjects. Again, write like an actor. I just put myself in a scientific mindset. I'm not a scientist, but hey, I took chemistry class and um, biology and whatever in, in, in high school. And I had to take uh, geology in, in college. You know, I know <laughs> something of science. And so I just kind of put on my scientist hat and try to look at a human being through the eyes of an alien because the human is the alien and I have to be somebody who's not, especially if I'm a reptile. And so I have a rigid mouth and they have this supple mouth that move this highly, what's the word? I had it in there. I lose words every once in a while. I also lose being able to pronounce words every once in a while. And so I had tripped over maddeningly. I don't know if you heard that in the chapter, maddeningly, madden. Madding, yeah, I have trouble with that one right now. I did my best. You can still hear me kind of trip on it. I, I recorded it like four times. That was the best one. <laughs> I, was just, I could not for some reason get it out. Um, well, there you are. But um, we're about to head into the meat of the story. And the reason why in the sequel... He needs a therapist so darn badly. Um, I don't want to rattle on too long here. It's already probably a long episode. So I will sign out for tonight and hopefully be back tomorrow to start the gruesome, to start Chapter 5. You can tweet me at at inhildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, or email me at inhildi at gmail.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you. What I don't want to hear from you after chapter five is, oh my God, this is gross. You've been warned. If you start to hear something, you think, uh-uh, you got a nope out of, you nope right out of it. And find that timestamp and go to the commentary. That's fine. You'll get a much cleaned up, uh, less gruesome summary. If you really still want to know how the story goes, or you can just wait till the next season when I do something different. <laughs> That's the thing about fanfic. Nobody's forcing you to read it. Nobody's forcing you to listen. If something nopes you, you can just stop reading. I've been reading fanfic and there was a fanfic I noped right out of. And what I did I do? Did I 
Type up a tirade to the author? No. I close the tab. Simple. There's no reason for abuse. That happens out there, and it's there's really no excuse for it. Um, hasn't happened to me, really. But um, it has happened to others, and there's no excuse for it. Fan fiction is free. Nobody's forcing you to read. And, no, you know, if you don't like it, don't read it. I might pick up something, open it up for the summary and the title, and then I might go, oh, no. You had me about half a page, but the no. And so I just close the tab. If I like a story enough, but need to give a comment that's uh, constructive criticism, I will try to do that. I will only do that to stories I feel worthy of getting that crit. And that means I'm going to tell them that I liked their story and I valued their story. However, the point of view shifts from Malcolm to Hoshi without a scene break were very distracting. They are, by the way. <laughs> That's my little way of saying, you're supposed to change the scene when you change the POV. <laughs> but, you know, I digress. All right, so... Email me, tweet me, let me know what you think so far, and then maybe do it again tomorrow when you hear chapter five and decide whether or not this is your cup of tea or not. All right, see you tomorrow.